Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Yaakov. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen, Father. We say amen to these words. We agree with David's declaration. You are the King of glory. There is no other. You are God alone. We praise You this morning. Lord, we gather in thankfulness and honor to Your name. We gather, Father, for this single purpose to lift up the name of Jesus and to state once again, both for Your glory and our faith, You are the Lord. You are the King of glory. Father, I ask this morning... Our eyes be open to this psalm as always. We want to see Your Word. We want to understand. We want to know. But Father, I pray more so our hearts be lifted up to You as King. That Father, in areas of our lives where we have not given over complete authority to You, that we will give those places up. That we will submit. That we will offer every aspect of who we are, of who You created us to be, for Your work, for Your kingdom, for Your glory. Holy Spirit, we invite You to teach us. We ask that You open our eyes to You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we pick up immediately where we left off. Last week, having done the 23rd Psalm, because Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are a trilogy of songs, I believe the greatest trilogy of songs ever penned by the hand of man. Taken together, these three songs, these three psalms of David, cover the entire breadth of the work of Messiah, of Jesus Christ. It's not difficult to see, once we pause and consider these things, that Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Shepherd and King. And beginning in Psalm 22 and running through the 24th Psalm, we see this as He covers beginning to end. Psalm 22 begins by taking us through the most explicit detail of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ anywhere in Scripture. More explicit in Psalm 22 than even the New Testament Scriptures that talk about, that describe historically what happened at the cross. It begins with that incredibly famous phrase, if you look back there, Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We talked about this on a Wednesday when a rabbi was teaching his students and wanted to focus their minds on a certain passage of Scripture. They didn't have chapter and verse like we do. Rabbi wouldn't say, open up to Psalm 22, verse 1. He would just begin with the first line of the passage and the students would know it. That's how they knew where to go in Scripture was the first line would be memorized and they knew, oh, that's, that's that particular part of the scroll. And so as Jesus on the cross cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is saying, Rabbi Jesus, go to Psalm 22. Look at Psalm 22, for this speaks of me. Further down in Psalm 22, verse 16, he says, They pierced my hands and my feet. David wrote this a thousand years before it happened to Jesus. Eight hundred years before crucifixion was even invented. They divide, verse 18, my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots which happened at the foot of the cross. It's an incredible psalm. We taught through this. But my friends, you need to understand Psalm 22 is the psalm of the good shepherd's cross. It's the psalm of the good shepherd's cross. John 10.11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd who does what? Who lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd's cross. 
And again, Psalm 22 covers the work of the cross from start to finish, speaking of Jesus even after His resurrection. And watch this, Psalm 22, verse 30. David writes, Posterity will serve Him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare His righteousness to a people who will be born that He has performed it. Now don't miss this. For as much as Psalm 22 begins with Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It ends with the last statement of Jesus on the cross. What was that? It is finished. The word performed in verse 31 is the Hebrew asah, which literally means finished. He finished it. It is finished. The work is done. And so we finish Psalm 22 with this great declaration of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ. And with that, the Good Shepherd becomes the Great Shepherd. Psalm 23, we looked at last week, is the psalm of the Great Shepherd's crook. Not as in a bad guy, but as crook, as in a shepherd's crook, the shepherd's crook or staff by which he leads us forward. I had to chuckle on Friday. I was having coffee with Steve and with Russ and... I think it was Russ who said it, but correct me if I'm wrong, Steve. He said, I think I'd rather be shepherded by the staff than the rod. You know? Was it Russ that said that? And then Steve chimed in, yeah, I just have pictures of my mother taking that rod and go, bam, you know, hitting me. I'd rather be shepherded by the shepherd's crook because that's the one where he pulls me in gently as opposed to the rod where he has to discipline me. But Psalm 23 is the psalm of the great shepherd's crook. As much as Psalm 22 is the the psalm of the Good Shepherd's cross. Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know the psalm, going all the way down to the end, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, because the great shepherd leads me from his resurrection to his Father's house, guiding me, feeding me, protecting me, equipping me, All along the way. By the way, that's the season of life that we're in right now, Psalm 23. We're in the season of the Great Shepherd, Jesus leading us. The Good Shepherd, that season has passed. The Good Shepherd who laid down His life for the sheep. It's done. It's finished. But now we're in the leading of Christ through sometimes the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes beside quiet waters. Other times to lie down in green pastures. Always preparing before us a table, even in the presence of our enemies. Oh, the good shepherd who has become the great shepherd. And Hebrews 13, verse 20 says, The God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, may He equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, these are the days of the Great Shepherd. But from the Good Shepherd's cross to the Great Shepherd's crook, just as Psalm 22 doesn't leave Jesus on the cross, Psalm 23 doesn't leave us on the journey. It ends with, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Which leads us directly into Psalm 24, which is the psalm of the Chief Shepherd's crown. Good Shepherd's cross. Great shepherd's crook. And finally, the chief shepherd's crown. I point all this out because, gang, this is a great place to go. Psalm 22, 23, 24. To think about what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus will do. Psalm 22, 23, 24. These are the past, the present, and the future of Jesus Christ, who the Hebrew writer tells us in 13, verse 8, is the same yesterday and today and forever. David prophetically, marvelously, by the Spirit of Christ, speaks of Christ from beginning to finish in these three psalms. And so in Psalm 24, the Good Shepherd, who is currently the Great Shepherd, returns as the Chief Shepherd of His people over all the earth. Watch this, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in in it. A couple of definitions for you. The word earth there may be familiar. It's Eretz. Eretz. It literally means the land. In fact, Israel's actual name is Eretz Israel. If you're speaking it in the Hebrew, Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. And that's what Eretz means. But what interests me more is the word for world there. 
The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. The Hebrew word there for world is tebel. Tebel is literally a gift. Because the earth is a gift given. The world is a gift given. This world, this earth, a gift given to us from the hands of God. But does the world recognize the gift? Sadly, no. We do even fathom the depth of depravity that would honor and worship the created earth over the Creator God. Over the actual, true, one and only Lord. You know, I was thinking through this, that our worry and our concern over the globe, or over oil spills, or over the environment, should first and foremost be reflected in recognition of the giver of the gift. But it's not. Instead, man arrogantly considers how we can save the world. We have to be green. Why? To save the world. We have to fear global warming. Why? Because we have to figure out a way to save the world. We've got to stop the oil spill. Why? Because we've got to save the world. And the mentality is completely wrong. The mentality ought to be, we want to take care of the earth because we are stewards of the gift. We want to stop the flow of the oil in the Gulf, not because somehow we can save the planet, but because this is God's gift and it's getting ruined down there. And so we should have a concern, not out of ourselves, not of a sense of self-protection or arrogance, but because this world is a gift from our Creator. He's blessed us with it. Why shouldn't we toss trash out of the car driving down the road? Because this is, this is the Father's gift. We do, listen here, we do as Christians have environmental concerns. We should. You know, it's not the opposite of, of the environmental movement. It's not that, oh, well, no, we should be able to trash the world. No, no, God gave it to us. We should have a concern to care for it. And we should also be in repentance for trashing it. This last week, Wednesday night, Hannah's last choir concert. And I was sitting there listening to the different you know, groups perform and sing. And there are some, a few moving moments, especially with the junior high choir. I'll tell you about that another time. But the last group came up, the concert choir for Anacortes High School. And it was dark in there. The lights were still on the stage. And they weren't on the stage. People were looking around. All of a sudden we heard the music began the song, a cappella. started to fill the house. And we looked around, and the concert choir had come in the back of Brodniak and had spread out all along the back, all just lined up, and they began singing. And as they sang the song, they moved forward. And the song was absolutely beautiful. The, the chord structure and the way it came together, I was getting chills. So, of course, what do you do? You grab the program. What is this that they're singing? Earth song. <sighs> Earth song. But it was still a great tune. And so I'm listening to the words. I'm like, Earth song. What are they trying to say here? Here are the lyrics. Listen to this. C. B. Live. C. This dark, stormy hour, the wind it stirs. The scorched earth cries out in vain. In vain. O war and power, you blind and blur. The torn heart cries out in pain, in pain. But music and singing have been my refuge. And music and singing shall be my light. The music began to swell here. Chills all over the place. A light of song, shining strong. Hallelujah! And I just went, yes! You know, I mean, not loud, but yes! (laughs) Hallelujah, they sang. And that was the apex of the song and then it came back down through darkness, pain and strife. I'll sing, I'll be, I'll live, I'll see peace. Why? Hallelujah. Because the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. Rick, are you getting a little earthy on us? Not exactly. Not exactly. Hear the word. Romans chapter 8. Let me just read this to you real quickly here. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the anxious longing of the creation. 
awaits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was not was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul says, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we even ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Paul says, look, the world's groaning. The created earth is groaning. The globe is anxiously awaiting the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. That's you and me. That's all those who have given their lives to Jesus, died in faith in the Lord, or live in faith in the Lord. Why should I care about the earth? Because it's a gift given. Not because we have the power to save it, but because He gave it. And as the great shepherd guides us through this world, never forget, for all we see, for all we enjoy, for the wonders and the pleasures of this world, never forget the one who created it. And if you find any pleasure whatsoever in life, thank him and worship him for the gift that he's given. David begins this awesome prophetic song with the created earth because it is to this earth he will return to rule. And to reign. Read on, verse 2. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers or waters. That's accurate to creation. If you go back and read the account, the Bible tells us it happened this way Genesis 1 9. God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters He called seas, and God saw that it was good. The earth was established up from the waters. God cleared the waters, gave them their waterways, their paths, their locations, and the earth emerged, and it's a great picture for us of life out of death. As as the Lord went on to say, Genesis 1.11, Let the earth sprout vegetation. Plants containing seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. Plants yielding seed after their kind. Trees bearing fruit with seed in them and after their kind. And God saw that it was good. Plants can't bear fruit underwater. Except for underwater plants. I acknowledge that. But you bury any of this, any of this land out here in salt water and apple trees will die. The grass will die. It, it can't survive. It doesn't continue on. And yet, David says, the Bible tells us that the earth was established up from the water. It was after the earth came out of the waters that the fruit appeared. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that death is from the waters driven. The earth is from the Lord. The earth is a gift given. Death is from the waters driven. In the same way that the the earth went through a sort of washing, not once but twice. Once at creation. And then as God brought forth life out of the waters again at the flood, the picture is important. Something to see and understand because we in the same way can be washed not once, but twice. Two times. Life from death, born of water, born of the Spirit. The beautiful symbol of this left by Jesus for us is baptism. Life out of the waters. Paul says in Romans 6.3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we've been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In the same way the earth was raised out of the waters, that death was from the waters driven, so you and I are raised to a newness of life out of the waters of baptism. Death from the waters driven. Now, I point this out because I still hear an argument from time to time over whether or not baptism is a necessary act. Is it essential in the life of a Christian? Is it something that we have to do? And i got to tell you, the argument I hear is just plain silliness. Because regardless of how you feel about baptism, Jesus said to do it. That should be enough for followers of Jesus Christ. Just do what He says. Do you have to understand everything He tells us to do? No, just do it. Just obey. 
trust and obey, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. But to trust and obey. If you are baptized because you think that it saves you, you're wrong. Because the Bible is absolutely clear we're saved by God's grace through faith and this is not of ourselves. So we aren't saved by an act. It's not that we're baptized and God says, okay, alright, check. He can be saved. No. He poured out grace before we made that choice. Before we received it. Before we accepted it. However, if you are not baptized because you think it's unnecessary, you're wrong. The reality is baptism portrays a burial. It pronounces grace. It pictures outwardly what God is doing inwardly. And it proclaims to the world, I was buried with Christ. I was raised up with Christ. I belong with Christ. For that understanding alone about the picture of water baptism should cause everyone to head to the pond. Galatians 3.27 tells us all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Who doesn't want to be clothed with Christ? Followers of Jesus, obedient children, who doesn't want to be wrapped up with the Spirit of Jesus Christ? Paul says, hey, get dunked. Go get washed. What's the application to the psalm, Pastor? The application is this. You cannot ascend the Lord's holy hill with dirty hands. Read on, verse 3. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? That word ascend is Allah. It's also Aliyah. You hear Jewish people today talking about making Aliyah back to the land. They're going back up. They're ascending to the land. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. David begins with the gifted earth. And then he leads the worshiper up holy hill, acknowledging that it's not just anyone who can ascend. You can't just wander up the hill anytime you want. And David understood this full well. David learned this firsthand. You cannot ascend Holy Hill with dirty hands. What do you mean? Jewish tradition tells us that this song was originally composed for the second bringing up of the ark to Jerusalem. First time was an utter failure. Or you could call it an Uzzah failure. <laughs> the first time was not good. As they went to the house of Obed-Edom, they're in Kiriath-Jerim, and they, and they brought the ark up, and they're dancing and singing, the band's playing, and I think Aerosmith was there, and they're rocking out, and they're having a good time. you know. And, and the, the, they have the ark on a cart, and it's being drawn by these oxen. And Uzzah and Ohio, the two guys are there leading the, the cart, their names, Uzzah, Mr. Strong, Ohio, Mr. Friendly, and they're walking along. And the ark begins to trip and Uzzah reaches out and touches it. No, no, Uzzah. Dirty hands. Dirty hands, man. Uzzah died on the spot. David called the spot Perez Uzzah, the breaking out of God against Uzzah. Uzzah breaks out. It was an absolute failure. And David goes back into Jerusalem just, how can, how can we ever bring this symbol of the glory and the holiness of God, how can we ever get this into the city? How is this possible? And he he sinks into some depression over this. But in the time in between Obed-Edom's house, you know the story, he starts to get blessed. You start looking down there going, you know, everything's going right for Obed. I mean, everything. So obviously, the Lord is there. The Lord is present. The Lord is blessing. And David, in considering these things, begins to recognize the problem was in their whole attitude toward the Lord. It was a heart problem. It wasn't a cart problem as much as it was a heart problem. And so the second time, it wasn't the same song, second verse. It was a new song altogether. 2 Samuel 6.15 says, David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord, was shouting with the sound of the trumpet, and they were not carrying on on a cart at that point. It was on the shoulders of the priests, as was prescribed. But the difference, the difference more than any other thing, was the heart. It was the worship. It was the humility. And it says they were shouting and, and singing. Well, what were they shouting and singing? Psalm 24. This psalm 
Josephus was the one who told us this psalm. That's what they would sing as they came up. Seven choirs of singers, Josephus wrote, and musicians marched before the ark as it was brought up from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. And in fact, the psalm was written in two parts. The first part was a singer. It was a singer's psalm. It was the congregation gathered? And the second part. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll tell you about that in just a minute. But David learned the hard way. David and the people learned you don't just march up Holy Hill with dirty hands and tainted hearts in vanity and in deceit. And by the way, verse 4, just to clarify, it says, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood. The phrase there, to falsehood, is literally in vain. You haven't lifted up your soul in vain. The first bringing up of the ark was a vain thing. It was humanistic, it was man-centered, and it was a parade. And it was all done in vain. People can sit in church in vain. People can sing songs of worship, play instruments to worship, and the whole thing can be done in vain if it's all about you. If it's all man-centered. It's all about trying to fool ourselves into thinking that we are righteous people based on our behavior. I sing a little louder, I'm more righteous than the guy next to me. I stand up and hold up my hands in worship as opposed to the guy sitting down who clearly doesn't love the Lord like I do. And the whole thing can be done in vain. The second time they traded in humanism for hallelujah. They traded in vanity for humility because, and if you're taking notes, because the ascent is of a person forgiven. Well, the earth is a gift given and death is, death is by the waters driven, but the ascent is of a person forgiven. Clean hands, pure heart, no vanity, no deceit. My friends, only the forgiven person can look like that. You can't achieve that. I I can't achieve that because we don't have clean hands. We don't have pure hearts. And vanity, let me ask you, how long did you take getting ready when you got up this morning? I took probably far longer than I really should have. And deceit, we deceive ourselves into thinking we can get up the hill on our own right, on our own behavior. And Isaiah 1, 16, verse and 17, the Lord says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. And all of these things are great cleansing agents. But the truth is my hands keep getting dirty. Did you know there are hundreds of types of bacteria on your hands right now? Good and bad. God created the good bacteria to wipe out the bad. And so there are little battles going on on your hands this morning as we study. In a recent study, you can find this on dermblog.com if you're interested. And those of you germaphobes may just want to not listen for a moment. A recent study of college students, arguably not the cleanest group of individuals, discovered that the average collegiate has 140 different types of bacteria on his or her skin at any given time. There were over 4,000 different types of bacteria identified across the students that were studied. That's a lot of grime. (laughs) Not surprisingly, the most common types were familiar household names. Propionobacterium. I'm sure you use that a lot. Acne. (laughs) Strep. And staph, which of the most infamous is methicillin-resistant staph aureus, which is MRSA, which is a subtype of staph. These are all just on their hands. (laughs) why don't people at the Bridge Christian Fellowship shake hands anymore (laughs) there were also differences in the bacteria on the dominant hand versus the non-dominant hand oh no namely bacteria normally found in the gastrointestinal tract was found more often on the dominant hand (laughs) this will no no doubt lead up to a follow up study do college students wash wash their hands before leaving the bathroom (laughs) dirty hands and I'm speaking physically and you know humorously but the reality is spiritually dirty hands at any given moment there's bacteria spiritual bacteria on my hands. Any given moment, my heart is not as absolutely pure as it needs to be for me to walk up Holy Hill. 
And so the Lord, after saying, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove your evil from my sight, after saying this, He goes on and says, come now, let's reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Make yourself clean. And we go, yeah, good idea. But I can't seem to get it done. And so the Lord says, alright, well then let's talk about this. Let's reason together. I have a cleansing agent, the blood of my Son, that will clean your hands, purify your heart. You will not ascend in vain. You will not be swearing deceitfully because you are washed, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why I have to know the Good Shepherd first. The Good Shepherd who lays down His life for His sheep. The one with the pierced hands and feet. It's why I need the Great Shepherd to lead me up Holy Hill. Send Psalm 22 and 23 before I can get to 24. Because by the time I get to 24, I need to be washed by the blood of Jesus, walking by the hand of Jesus... And so that when I get up to the top of Holy, a holy Hill and I come before the Father and He says, Alright, Son, let me check your hands. Rather than looking at my hands, Jesus holds up His hands instead. And the Lord sees the prints of the nails and declares me clean. Declares me washed. The earth is a gift given, death from the waters driven, that the ascent up Holy Hill would be of a person who is forgiven he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation note that not righteousness from himself but from the God of his salvation verse 6 this is the generation of those who seek him who seek your face even Jacob the word even is added what he's saying is this is the generation David is talking about the people of Israel at his time this is the generation of those who seek him Jacob the Israelites were the God-seeking generation. Oh, David, you're an optimist. You're an optimist. Can we say this of our generation? Can we say that this is the generation of those who seek Him? Or in fact, is this the generation of those who more and more reject Him, turn away from Him? Only the companions of the King Only the sheep of the shepherd have this mindset. That is to be the people, the generation of those who seek after Him. Perhaps part of this generation's problem is rushing to the next thing. What do you mean? Well, this part of the psalm, the first six verses, make up the first part of the psalm. is followed by Selah. Selah. Okay, ascend Holy Hill. And then wait. Pause. I think about David and the people pausing every six steps along the route of return, bringing the Ark of the Covenant up. Every six steps they stopped. They worshipped. And they considered where they were taking the Ark and who they were bringing the Ark to. Selah. Pause. Psalm 27.14 tells us to wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes! But wait for the Lord. Are you in a hurry this morning? Listen, you rarely find the Lord in a rush. We most often find the Lord when we have moments of Selah, of quiet, of pause, where we wait and we listen and allow Him to speak. David wrote of a great company. The generation of Israel who he saw as seekers of Yahweh. And here's the division of the psalm, verses 1-6, through that's part 1. It's the coming up of the companions of the king. The coming up of the companions of the king, drawing near the king, drawing up to the king. And part two now, the coming down of the king himself to set up his kingdom. Verse seven. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. This had immediate application for David and the people of Israel. Lift up your heads, O gates. Speaking of the gates of the city of David. But these gates were not so ancient. David having built the gates, to call them ancient doors wouldn't quite make sense because they're new doors. But the word ancient here has a double meaning in the Hebrew. It also means everlasting. 
And David already at this point in his rule, in his authority, recognized his kingdom was more than a moment in time. His kingdom was an everlasting and enduring, the endless nature of his kingdom. Prophetically, we know this to be true. In fact, it was just after this. The ark was up there. Things are settled in Jerusalem. David is king. And the Lord comes to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. And he says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So what David is saying, at least here in verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O everlasting doors. Because this is the beginnings here, David is saying, of an everlasting kingdom. And as you pass through these gates, recognize it is an everlasting door through which we go to see the King of Glory. Verse 8, Who is the King of Glory? The Lord. Strong and mighty. The Lord. Mighty in battle. And David, what a humble heart. King of Israel, great conqueror, mighty David, shepherd of his people. And he pauses to clarify who the king of Israel truly is. And David would say, ain't me. It's not me. No, number four in your notes, the king is the Lord God of heaven. The king is the Lord. I was just handed this this morning. Theology school melds studies of different faith. The Skagit Valley Herald religious section. Let me just read this to you for a moment. I, I wasn't going to do this, but I think I need to. The venerable Claremont School of Theology has taught Methodist ministers and theologians for more than a century, but in the fall they'll try an unorthodox approach, cross-training the nation's future Muslim, Christian, and Jewish religious leaders in classrooms scattered around Southern California as they work toward their respective degrees. The experimental approach launched Wednesday is intended to create U.S. religious leaders who not only preach tolerance in an era of religious strife, but who have lived it themselves by rubbing shoulders with those in other Abrahamic faiths. The idea has already met resistance from more conservative elements in some religious communities. Its architects, oh, by the way, I are one of those religious elements who has resistance to this. Its architects say that that only underscores the need for such an approach. Intolerant bigots like Pastor Rick. <laughs> Christians attend school with Christians, Jewish with Jewish, and Muslims with Muslims, says the Reverend Jerry Campbell, Claremont president. Educating people in a segregated environment is not a way to teach them to be peacemakers. It only steeps them in their own religion and with their own people. Let me just ask you this question. How about just teaching the Bible? And the problem is that a Muslim would not teach the Bible. And the problem is that the Muslim God, Allah, is not the Lord of heaven. Allah is, is not the God of the Bible. Different God. This lie, we've talked about this before, this lie that Jews, Christians, and Muslims share the same God. Uh-uh. Not true. Muslims don't believe that. Why are Christians constantly pushed to embrace that? Jews, Christians alike share belief in the same God, although even with the Jewish people, it is a limited view because they don't see Jesus as God. Not yet. Teach the Word. Teach the truth. And I'm going to send a recording of this to President Jerry Campbell. One more conservative voice in the wilderness. My friends, the King is the Lord God of heaven and there is but one God. And to further illustrate this, think about this. When David brought the ark up from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem the second time, do you remember what he was wearing? 2 Samuel 6.14 says it was a linen ephod. Some have tried to cast that as a toga. No. A linen ephod was the common dress of the Levitical tribe when they served in the temple. It was just the linen garment of the priest. It was a humble garment. The, the chief priest, yeah, he had the, he had the stones and the jewels and the, all the stuff in the crown. But the average priest serving in the temple... Basic linen ephod. 
David was not wearing the robes of the king. He was not wearing the armor of military might. Just the plain, simple linen ephod of priestly servants. Now hold that thought and read on. Verse 9. Lift up your heads, O gates! Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now you need to notice something. A couple of things as we come down to the end of this. First off, notice that the answer to who is the King of glory is mentioned three times. Who is the King of glory? Verse 8. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Down in verse 10. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. Three times that's interesting. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three aspects of the one and true God. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. The Lord is God the Father. The Lord is God the Son. The Lord is God the Spirit. He is one and the same God who we worship. But why does David repeat the refrain? Well, he doesn't. He doesn't. Not exactly. Not exactly. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The first time he says, The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Then, second time, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? And the second time, he says, The Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies. Who is the first mention of the King of glory? The Lord. Who is the second mention of the King of glory? The Lord of armies. Because the first refrain speaks of one who came. At least, well, to David, one who was coming a first time. The Lord. The second refrain speaks of a second coming. That is of a Lord of armies. Two comings into Jerusalem. The first, Jesus came alone. By himself. Not with a host, not with an army. He just came alone, riding the donkey into Jerusalem as the people shouted, Hosanna, God save us! And he did. Jesus was strong and mighty at the cross, winning the battle at Jerusalem. He is the King of glory. In his second coming, Jesus comes as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the warrior Messiah, the great King coming arrayed for battle. Just as David honored the Lord God of heaven simply and humbly, crying, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, you ancient or everlasting doors, that the king may come in. We'll be singing the same song. And we will be wearing the same thing that David was wearing. The linen ephod, David wore, Revelation 19.14, the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. The Bible tells us in Colossians 3.4, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So historically, David wrote a song for the bringing of the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem, but prophetically... The song speaks of the Lord in His first coming, strong and mighty. And the Lord in His second coming, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory Himself, who promised to come through those old doors, who promised to return through that ancient eastern gate of Jerusalem. Where did He promise that? Matthew twenty four twenty seven. Jesus said, Just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, look to the east. What happens in the east? Well, that's where the sun rises. That's where morning comes. That's the direction of the eastern gate of the temple. By the way, that was the first gate opened every morning in Jerusalem by the priests, by the leaders. Open the eastern gate first. Why? So the sun comes pouring in across the hills, lighting up what was often called the golden city of Jerusalem. Because the white stones of Jerusalem, when hit by the sun, it's it's a stunning sight. And they would open up the eastern gates expectantly because their own prophet said, Messiah is going to come through this gate. So let's make sure that one's ready first. We'll get the dung gate later. <laughs> open up the eastern gate. Ezekiel 43 verse 1. Ezekiel is in a vision, a great vision, and this angel is leading him. He led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And His voice was like the sound of many waters. Remember how John described Jesus in the book of Revelation. 
voice like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with His glory. And Ezekiel 43 verse 4 he says, And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. The ancient gate. The eastern gate. Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up. O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in and that eastern gate will be opened and in Jesus will come. And it's a marvel to see. If I could this morning transport us all on, on BTA, Foreign Transatlantic Airways. If we could just make our way to Jerusalem, over to the Mount of Olives, I'd, I'd lead you to a little stone enclosure there. A few of you have been there. We gather around, even on this morning, and you could look across the Cadrone Valley, there at the Temple Mount, and there it is, the facade of the Eastern Gate, and it's a wonderful sight. The facade? What do you mean the facade? It's not a real gate. It's just carved into the wall to look like a gate. You see, back in 1538, the Ottoman Turk Muslim conqueror Suleiman the Magnificent, after having conquered Jerusalem, needed to rebuild the wall. It was totally torn down by the Ottoman Turks. So they rebuilt the wall all the way around the city. And he built into that wall 11 gates, as were in the wall before. Seven of them you could pass through. The rest of them you could not. One of the ones you could not pass through was that facade of the eastern gate. Why didn't he create a gate that could be opened? Because the Muslims knew that the Jewish Messiah was supposed to come through the eastern gate as well. So we'll put up a fake gate. In front of it, we're going to have a nice Muslim cemetery to defile the ground because, well, you know, that'll stop Messiah. The eastern gate is a sealed facade. But if this psalm is prophetic, and I promise you, I guarantee, I will stake my faith on it, that this psalm is prophetic, and the chief shepherd, Jesus, is supposed to pass through the eastern gate into the city, how is he going to do it? Well, this is marvelous. We've talked about this a few times. In fact, in Israel the last time, I shared this with the group, and I could not remember the exact story. Here it is. In 1969, an archaeologist by the name of James Fleming was investigating the eastern wall of the Temple Mount. He was down there in front of the wall. He's looking at the facade. He's investigating around, seeing if he can find anything. It it had rained heavily the night before. The ground was saturated and soggy as he kind of slogged through it, looking around. And suddenly the earth gave way under his feet, and he fell eight feet down into a pit. Fleming writes, When I got my bearings, I realized I was standing knee-deep in bones. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Fleming then went on to write, and this is uh, in the um, Biblical Archaeological Review, January, February edition, 1983, page 30. So you can look it up. Fleming said, I noticed with astonishment that on the eastern face of the turret wall, directly beneath the Golden Gate, that facade itself, were five wedge-shaped stones set in a massive arch spanning the turret wall. The remains of the earlier gate to Jerusalem, directly beneath the Golden Gate, one that had apparently never been fully documented. It's there. The old gate is there, directly beneath the facade. The real one still exists there underground. And interestingly, soon after Fleming's discovery in 1969, Muslims covered the chamber, cemented over the top, and surrounded this mass grave with a protective iron fence. Again, because iron fences can keep out Messiah. (laughs) But it's still underground, right? Isn't that problematic? Well, yeah, for now. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. The book of Revelation describes no less than five massive, earth-changing earthquakes during the tribulation. It describes changes in the entire landscape as the chief shepherd returns. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 4. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain be laid, and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Zechariah says in Zechariah 14, verse 4, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem, on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by, by a very large valley, so half of the mountain will move toward the north, the other half will move toward the south. Zechariah 14.10 All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem, but, but Jerusalem will rise 
and remain on its site. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord Jesus, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the chief shepherd. Ah, The Lord of hosts, he's coming back to the earth to establish his long-awaited messianic kingdom. Why is he coming back to the earth? Because as verse 1 tells us, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world, even those who dwell in it, as he comes back. Revelation 19.12 tells us on his head are many diadems. Now I told you this is the psalm of the chief shepherd's crown. Psalm 22, the, the good shepherd's cross. Psalm 23, the great shepherd's crook. Psalm 24, the chief shepherd's crown. But the chief shepherd's crown, listen to this, is not a crown worn by Jesus. On his head are many diadems. But that is not the chief shepherd's crown. What are you talking about? 1 Peter 5.4 tells us, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Who gets this crown? Well, technically, in 1 Peter 5, he's talking to shepherds. He's talking to elders. And he's saying, shepherd well. Don't shepherd for ill-gotten gain. Shepherd compassionately, caringly, lovingly. And then Peter talking to shepherds says, and you will receive the unfading crown of glory. But the chief shepherd has many crowns to pass out. In 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul writes, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, Paul says, but to all who have loved His appearing. Do you love His appearing? Are you looking? As led by the great shepherd, are you looking for the appearing of the chief shepherd? The shepherd of our souls and our spirits, Jesus Christ. He's coming back. And His coming is imminent. And you've heard me say that before. Let me say it again. His coming is imminent. And this is how we are called to live our lives lifting up the one and only God, the God of heaven, walking up the hill, ascending the hill with clean hands and pure hearts, recognizing the old life is dead as we come out of the waters, both of baptism and the baptism of His Spirit. (coughs) Recognizing the earth is the Lord's, a gift given. Do you love His appearing? From time to time, I I just ask myself that question. Rick, do you love His appearing? You might think that's odd. I talk about His appearing all the time. Of course I love His appearing. But there are moments in my life, in my days, where I'm not living, where the hands are getting more dirty, and the question pops into my mind, do you love His appearing? Are you dressed and ready? Are you prepared for the return of the Chief Shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ? Father, prepare us all. May our hearts be ready this morning, this day. Lord, may we be looking to the east. Spiritually, may our hearts be washed, cleansed, and prepared by Your Spirit and by Your grace. And then, Lord, may we continue in in these cleansing agents of loving each other and showing kindness and compassion, bearing the fruit of Your Spirit in our lives. May we be, Lord, focused on You and thinking about You and excited at the very mention that You are coming again to shepherd us in a way that is marvelous and eternal. Lord Jesus, we join with David in saying, Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Spiritually this morning, Lord, would You come into our hearts if there's anyone here who's never accepted You as the Chief Shepherd. And the great shepherd and the good shepherd, may the doors of the heart be open to receive you today. And Jesus, may we also be looking specifically for your return. As we worship you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.